Now it's time for some deep voice action. You may have heard this guy before. The time has come for the next International GS Trophy to take place in New Zealand in 2020. After Tunisia, South Africa, Patagonia, Canada, Thailand, and finally Mongolia, New Zealand, with its breathtaking mix of vast mountain ranges, lonesome coastlines, and steaming volcanoes, offers the perfect terrain for the next International GS Trophy 2020. On that note, we'll fade things out. It's pretty inspiring stuff though, isn't it? But that's the GS Trophy in a nutshell. It's an awe-inspiring gathering that celebrates the spirit of the BMW GS, bringing together riders from across the globe for unforgettable adventures, experiences and challenges. Of course, the international finals don't take place until next year, but the build-up period right now is where many of the great stories are, where we can bring you an exciting taste of what to expect and which characters and teams to look out for when this unique event starts for real on those two islands far away in the Southern Pacific in February 2020. At BMW Motorrad, we're going to bring as much of the trophy direct to you as possible via social media updates, and I'll be doing a lot of Facebook and Instagram live streams. There'll also be amazing daily highlights packages produced by an incredibly hard-working film team and presented by a couple of characters well-known in the GS family. I caught up with the two new GS trophy presenters, Sean Thomas and Jocelyn Snow, shortly after they'd heard the good news. Okay, so congrats, guys. How does it feel to be chosen as the International GS Trophy presenters for 2020? Oh, my goodness. Wow. Huh? Wow is right. I'm not really sure if this has sunk in yet. Has exactly right. Exactly. It's, yeah. it's really, really exciting. <laughs> yeah, I'm so grateful to have this opportunity, and I'm sure, Sean, you are too. Yeah, this is exactly amazing. what I wanted, and, and I'm, I just can't – I still can't believe it's happening. Ah, that's absolutely great news. It's so good to have you on board in an official capacity. I mean, it, but it's such a big world out there. But, but you guys literally live around the corner from each other, so you must already know one another pretty pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's true. And there's a, um, there's sort of a cliche, um, part of that too. Uh, we met for the first time as neighbors, um, at the local Starbucks. Uh Oh, he said it. <laughs> <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's true. You sure did. And, and that was only, uh, a couple years ago. Right? Yeah. yeah. And we found out that we've spent the last 10 years living a mile from each other and we didn't know. Crazy. It's a small world, you know, but it yeah. really is. That, that's, a, that's a little over a kilometer for those of you that uh, don't speak miles. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty close. It's an absolute madness as well, considering what you've both been doing on motorcycles during that time. And as for you, Jocelyn, you were a participant in the 2016 International GS Trophy in Mongolia. So can you describe how that experience was for you? Oh, my goodness. And that really was... Uh quite the experience, experience of a lifetime for sure. Um, I would say first it was the preparation for uh, the Mongolia trophy and uh, it was pretty extensive. I, I was hard on myself. I spent um, every night after work and every weekend training, practicing and preparing myself um, both physically and mentally for what I thought I was going to um, face in Mongolia. Um, that that was a lot of the work. And then when I arrived there uh, at the trophy, boy, it, it was so exciting to have everybody 
sharing the same passion that I have and, and riding together and learning the different cultures of the people from, from different countries. And I, I, there's so much to say about it. I don't know if we have enough time, but I, I'll tell you, it was just amazing. Yeah, I mean, I'm just smiling listening to you describe it and bringing back, <laughs> back the memories. And, and of course, it is a once-in-a-lifetime experience, which sounds like a cliche, but it's true. You can only participate once. So you must feel really lucky to be having the chance to go back again. Oh, gosh. <laughs> yeah, lucky. <laughs> lucky for sure. I, I, uh, I remember uh, at Mongolia at the last trophy, uh, sitting down with Sean and I think we were a couple days to the end of it. And I, I said to Sean, I said, Oh my gosh, this can't end. It's almost over. And I just don't want this to end. And Sean said, (laughs) I, uh, I said, you know, what we really need to do is we need to find a way to come back. And wouldn't it be awesome if we could come back as the presenters, if we could come back and show the world from our perspective, what it's like here and not really thinking you could go. No, we had no idea. (laughs) We thought we'd be driving the support trucks. That was a very, very cunning plan to hatch. And I'm really glad it's worked out for you because, you know, some people are lucky enough to return as marshals, journalists, or even presenters. So from, from your perspective, Sean, you, you covered the last uh, international GS trophy in Mongolia as a journalist. So what memories stay with you most about that event? You know, um, going as a journalist, of course, was the first time for me. I, I didn't know what I had in store. And as a consequence, I, I prepared in a lot of different ways, uh, physically and mentally. And I was so glad that I did because it was really intense. I, after the first day of riding for 10 hours and then spending four hours doing journalism to tell the world what was happening. I was so tired. I go, I don't know if I can do this for the rest of the trip, but, uh, um, it was, uh, the, the being able to, uh, push myself and uh, make it to the other side successfully. I mean, that, that for me was a, um, a, a real testament to, uh, to friendship and camaraderie that helped uh, to get me through it. That's what I remember most. One of your uh, many roles within the BMW world is, is you're also a brand ambassador for BMW Motorrad. So what do you love most about this particular role? You know, uh, the um, being a brand ambassador for me, the, the best part is, is inspiring people. Um, there is so much um, joy and, uh, and excitement that goes into motorcycling, but there's also a lot of technology and uh, teaching people about that and helping them understand what the machines can do and seeing them light up when they realize, you know, this is, this is something that I, I, I really want in my life. And, and I didn't know that. And now I love it even more. Like that, that to me is, is everything. It's really special. And what about you, Jocelyn? You competed in the last international GS trophy for Team Oz America, one of the two international female teams for that particular event. Have you enjoyed seeing the female GS community grow in recent years? Oh, have I ever. It's phenomenal to see how many women are getting into motorcycling. Absolutely unbelievable. And since the trophy qualifier, I, I've kind of made it my personal mission to inspire riders to get into adventure riding, um, especially women. And I've seen it. I just recently, uh, last month, I was at a adventure rally and it's one that I had been to uh, for the last three years and to see how many more women I'm going to say at least 10 times as many women were there this year than were last year and then again the same so it's happening and it's 
It's absolutely beautiful to watch. Yeah, I mean, you're both off-road instructors and in teaching other GS riders, men and women, just what they and their bikes are capable of with the right training. So I guess this is a role that both of you find quite rewarding. Definitely. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. The, uh, it's, uh, you know, I, I've taught upwards of 10,000 people how to ride off-road. And it's over the years, and, and what is so exciting for me is standing in front of a group of people that are first-time off-roaders and tell them, um, in the next few hours, you're going to be shocked, shocked at what you can do that you didn't think you could do. And to be able to make that prediction and see eyebrows raise, and then four hours later, have people come back to me and say, you're absolutely right. I had no idea I'd be able to do this. That it really, really feels good. It does, doesn't it? You know, and for me, it's... Uh... There's there's really only one thing better than when you nail um, a skill, you know, when you do it right on your motorcycle. And, and, and what's better than that is showing someone else how to do it and watching them get it. Um, it's amazing. Well, that's that that's the thing, Jocelyn. Jocelyn, I know you enjoy busting myths, especially ones such as does size matter. <laughs> I also. I also know you own a lot of BMW bikes from the, the little 310 GS right up to the mighty 1200 Adventure. And I've seen you effortless, effortlessly pick up big 250 kilogram boxes from the ground and then hustle them around like, like small dirt bikes on tough terrain. <laughs> so what's your message to other women and men who think that they may be too small or too weak to ride a GS off-road? And, and I should add at this point that you're only 1.55 metres. That's five feet one and a bit in old money tall. <laughs> <laughs> hey, let's not forget that half inch. I think I'm five foot one and a half inch, right? Yeah, Andy, and, you and I are... <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a super important... <laughs> there you go. You and I are pretty tall, and, and we just sort of round up the number. But when people are shorter than you and I are, they, they go right down to the, the millimeter. <laughs> <laughs> well, my message um, to these vertically challenged riders um, is don't let anyone tell you you can't do that. Mm. This bike is too big or you're too small. And most importantly, don't let yourself tell you that. There's there's a saying, our only limitations are those we set up in our own minds. Mm. And I, I can't say any better myself. It's so true. And regardless of the size of the bike, um, you, the, you can find your way to handle this machine and handle it good. And you can do absolutely anything that you put your mind to. I, I say there's three things you need. And it's confidence, attitude, and balance. Mm. And with that, just, yeah, the sky's the limit, huh? You were living proof of that, that's for sure. <laughs> I completely agree with, with, with all of those points and, and certainly on the attitude side. So look, we're, we're going to be going to New Zealand in 2020. It's the first time that the trophy is visiting that country. And, and I think maybe the first time riding over there for each of you? Yes, That's for me, true. yes. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, so how excited are you both about this amazing country as an international GS Trophy destination? <laughs> you know, um, many years ago, I was on the team that uh, uh, released the 1200 GS on the One World, One GS tour around the world. And, and we had um, a videographer and photographer that um, they, they were National Geographic quality um, uh, journalists and they did amazing work and I asked them what is your favorite place to ride where have you been that was better than any place else and they 
emphatically said New Zealand. And that really stuck with me. Um, and, and it became my ultimate bucket list experience. Second place only to Mongolia. <laughs> so, that's pretty excited to be going to both of my bucket list places. <laughs> well, speaking of bucket list, my bucket list is a 55-gallon drum. But I have to say that New Zealand has been at the top of that drum for many, many, many years. And last year at the GS Trophy in Mongolia, um, one of the officials came down, came around with a recorder and was asking everyone, so, hey, you know, where would you like to see the next year's trophy? And when they got to our circle, there was like five of us ladies standing in a circle. And I was the first one to answer. I said, New Zealand. And the rest of the ladies said the same as it went around the circle, New Zealand, New Zealand. And I'll tell you what, to, to find out that it's happening in New Zealand, was it was so exciting. And I'll tell you, New Zealand has just amazing terrain. It is I think it, it dishes up everything, right? From from the desert to the woods to the mountains, the rocks. I, they, wow, what a place to have a trophy. <laughs> it, it sounds like it was it was because of you that we're going into. No, <laughs> I don't think it was. <laughs> That's fine with me. I would, I would take that, though. <laughs> but no, I would say not. Uh, but I think uh, it's probably because of the diverse terrain and, and all that New Zealand has to offer. It's, yeah. it's going to be exceptional. Excellent. I haven't come across one person who's disappointed at the fact that the trophy is visiting New Zealand. Even people who've been there before and who've lived there and who've spent a lot of time riding bikes over there, they're still really, really excited to go back. So I think we're I think we've struck gold there. So, But of course, you've both got a serious job to do over there to bring the excitement, the drama, the camaraderie and all the action from the International GS Trophy to the rest of the world. Otherwise, you know, it's just a bunch of GS riders having fun in, in, in the outback. The most important thing is tell the world about it. So what are you both looking forward to most about this particular challenge? Uh, I think that, uh, that the things that you described, the drama and the camaraderie and the action, this is all to us. Uh, the gravy of getting to share it. I mean, this <laughs> it is. is this is easy. We look at this going, there are so many wonderful things happening at the trophy. We know it. We've seen it. And we're about to see it again. Just stick a camera on us and we're going to let the world know how exciting oh, it really is here. <laughs> <laughs> That's absolutely brilliant. I have no doubt of that whatsoever. So final question from my side. If you were a competitor, what would you be doing or what would you be advising them to do from now until the start of the trophy, you know, in terms of pre preparations? Yeah, I would say um, definitely sharpen your skills, mm. you know, R ride your bike, ride your bike, get some seat time, um, practice, um, check out social media and, and see some of the uh, special tests and what was involved at the trophy, um, physical fitness, stamina, you know, definitely stamina for mm. sure. Um, you know, get yourself on a diet and get fit and, and then mentally prepare yourself. Yeah, I, I think that uh, number one is, is to go there to have fun. You've won. You're going. And love it and enjoy it and embrace it. And if you're there to win, and I'm sure you are, <laughs> then being an exceptional rider is not enough. You have to focus on other elements as well. Teamwork is a really, really big one. How should you know your team? Um, is a uh, is an important element to that? Would you not say so? Yeah, as a matter of fact, I I think I think that's probably the most important. And thanks for tapping on that. The you're only going to be as good as your team, 
And so I would also suggest uh, that you reach out to your other team members. Uh, if you happen to be on other ends of the country, opposite ends of the country, then find a way to talk uh, on the phone or through Skype regularly. Uh, try to get together and spend some time writing and, and, and bond that team. Right? Mm. Get, a, get a strong team. will will finish strongly. Yeah, I think, you know, from my experience so far, having sort of been to four trophies, it kind of doesn't really matter who wins, you know, because it's all about just being there and having fun, right? It really is. Yeah, yeah. you know, you watch the, the highlight videos that come out of each trophy and, you know, each video is is just four, five, six, seven minutes of eye candy and you just enjoy it so much. But it, it took I took note of the fact that of all of that time spent celebrating the experience, there's maybe five seconds dedicated to the winners. And that's because it's not about that. Yeah, go and have fun and try to win and have a good time, but enjoy the fact that you get to be a part of this community in such a special and unique way. You're already a winner just for being there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Agree 100%. Well, thanks so much for talking to us, guys. There's, there's clearly a great rapport between you both. And of course, you're. <laughs> Thank you. And, and your passion for the GS world is clear to see. So look after yourselves over the next months. Do not get injured. And I'll see you on the other <laughs> Yes, sir. Yeah, you either. Yeah, you Absolutely. Either. And I'll see you on the other side of the world in February 2020. Bye for now. Bye now. Bye. Thank you. You'll know by now that the R9T Slash 5 Special Anniversary model is landing in dealers. It's been produced to mark the 50th anniversary of the original Slash 5 series and the start of BMW Motorrad production in Berlin Spandau. 50 years ago, the world was a very different place, and 1969 was a particularly amazing year, defined by upheaval, rock music and a powerful sense of freedom. We first set foot on the moon in 69. The Beatles released Abbey Road. The charts were dominated by The Stones, Hendrix, James Brown, Pink Floyd, Fleetwood Mac and more. Over 350,000 music fans went to Woodstock. More than a quarter of a million people marched on Washington in protest at the Vietnam War. There were some iconic films released, like Easy Rider, Midnight Cowboy, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, just to name a few. Car ownership had increased enormously in the 60s, especially for BMW. So 1969 was the year that the production of BMW motorcycles moved to Berlin. And what an impact they made that year, with the introduction of the new Slash 5 series. With a completely newly developed chassis and engine, along with a fresh modern design, the Slash 5 models saw instant success. With an unrivaled combination of riding dynamics, sporty handling and comfort, these bikes started a love affair that continues to this day. And here to tell us more about the Slash 5 era, and its crucial place in BMW Motorrad's history, is Fred Jacobs, a human encyclopedia of brand knowledge, and a great man to have by your side in a motorcycle pub quiz. Hey, Fred. Hi, Andy. Lovely to have you here. Can you tell us, is it really half a century since the Slash 5 made its debut? Yeah, it's, uh, it was in 1969, and if you look at the bike today, you would say, okay, perhaps a 20, 25-years-old bike, but you can't believe that it's really 50-years-old motorcycle. And can you give us some kind of description of what the motorcycle market was like back in 1969? Not just for BMW, but also, you know, with the emerging influence of the Japanese and the decline of the British manufacturers, of course. Yeah, the first thing is perhaps so there was a 
crisis in Europe, you could say. It, um, it was not the, the role of the, of the Japanese manufacturers, but the customers don't want to have motorcycles. They try to have a car, and not like today that you say, okay, I have a car and a motorcycle. At this time, you don't have the money. You have to decide, and most people want to have um, a car. And the motorcycle was the cheap and has a cheap image so uh, for that. The image was not good and the sales figures went down from middle of the 50s in Germany, especially to the 60s. And what was happening at the end of the 1960s internally with BMW? Yeah, the sales figures have been bad. So we sold from 1956 on less than 10,000 10, motorcycles every year. So... In, in at the beginning 50s, we have more than 30,000. So it was a big crisis, and also a lot of German manufacturers get bankrupt at this time. Because the image of the motorcycle was bad, it was the cheap way for transport, and people look for a car. So sales figures bad, image was bad. But then in the 60s, uh, we made a market research, and we saw, especially in the United States, there could be a comeback of the motorcycle. So in, which a new, in a new role, so it's for hobby and sport and on. And also, you see it at the year 69. We have a lot of 750 models on the market, not only the Slash 5. You see it from British manufacturers, you see it from Italian manufacturers, and of course the Japanese. Yeah, this is one of the things I wanted to ask you. What was the thinking behind the introduction of this dramatic new model series? They had to change the way that they were doing things, right? Yeah, there are a few things. Um, for example, if you look back, every model was able to uh, switch on a sidecar on the, on the regular frame of the motorcycle. So you have connections there, and sidecar was, yeah, it was the cheap way for transport. Three people can go on a motorcycle. And the Slash 5 is the first motorcycle that was developed for this new image. You go fast, you go alone, Perhaps you have a Zosia on, on your motorcycle, but it's for the weekend, it's for the long tour, for the holiday, for hobby sport, perhaps also for the racetrack, but not the cheap way to go from home to work or something like that. So it was a completely new way of thinking, and, and that showed itself uh, in terms of what was on the bikes that, that came out, because just about everything was new on this model series. New engines, new chassis, new suspension, modern 12-volt electrics. What was going on? Yeah, and also one thing, we get colors. <laughs> All the, the former models have been only in black, and perhaps the, the, the top model, the 69S, you could buy in white. <laughs> so we start with three colors, of course, one was black, the other one white, and then silver, but then over the years it came with green, blue, and that's also that you see, uh, yeah, it's, it's fun, it's a little bit uh, part of the uh, pop era, not the rock and roll, that's are the black bikes, and then you see all this flower power image with colors, and also the dresses went, for example. So it's absolute, everything was, was new, and yeah, the old model was around with a little, with a little change of 15 years on the market. And dramatic's a word because, of course, you know, a lot of these changes were needed to um, keep up with the, keep the company viable in many respects with the rapidly advancing Japanese manufacturers, with the onslaught from Japan at that time. In the first year of the Slash 5, we sold more than 10,000. So it was in, uh, and then five years later, we had this 30,000 mark. So we had a new record. So of course, there have been Japanese or Italian British competitors, but it helps in general to sell motorcycles in the 70s. 
Yeah, because there were three models introduced. There was the 50 slash 5, the 60 slash 5, and the 75. But there were big price increases as well over the predecessor model. So it was quite a bold move by BMW. Yeah, but I compare it. For example, motorcycle is a hobby. And for a hobby, you get you spend more money than, than if you do it professional. If you look around, for example, for a hobby photographer, they have all these lenses and whatever. And if you look on the professionals, they have two lenses, of course, but they don't spend a lot of money for that. They said, okay, I need it for work. And it, I think it's the same that happens on the motorcycle. The, seven, uh, the Slash 5 series was the first series that the top model had the best sales features. I think it was a good decision, this, this pricing. Um, so there have been no compromises on the bike. You have the same quality that you say, okay, it's a BMW with a shaft drive. It's more expensive than, than a chain drive or whatever. All the things you had on the bike. But I heard also that there were some of the uh, traditionalists that were upset by this new generation of bikes from BMW. Is that true? Were there a few people who wanted things to stay they'd always, you know, the old ways, how they'd always been? Yes, but it's the same today. Every new model that tried is said, no, that's not a really BMW, and you see it over the years. But I remember when I started as a student at the BMW archive, so we've been responsible um, from the bikes from 1923 to 1969, so not the Slash 5 models. And that you say, okay, these are modern bikes. The other one are the classic bikes. And then 20 years later, everybody's thinking, oh, the Slash 5 is not a, a classic bike. Classic BMW has to be black and uh, a single saddle and not a seat bench and all these things. And I think at this time, um, I know a lot of BMW fans wait for such a bike because there have been no no changes over 15 years, and when they compare it with British or Italian bikes. So the old BMWs looks really old. So, And that was, for example, the reason there's an American market, also the 69S or the, the Slash 2 series, uh, models have been sold in red, blue, and green. Nobody, Not so many people know about it, but they tried, and also the, the, the telescopic fork of the, of the Slash 5 says. They get it two years earlier in the 69S, for example. So they do, also all importers say, your bikes look, look really, really old if you compare it with that. So uh, also a lot of BMW waited for, um, for this new generation. Well, it obviously proved to be the right decision for the brand because sales were very strong. I think nearly 70,000 of them were, were produced in the four-year lifespan, which was maybe small compared to what was coming out of Japan at the time, but certainly proof that there's always a gap in the market for uh, premium quality. Yeah, and if you look on the, on the sales figures, for example, for the Japanese brands, they always sell in 250, 350 uh, cc. So, um, but it was very funny on the old market research, um, they said... Um, it's up up to 175, up to 175 to 250 cc, and then uh, 250 to 350, and then 350 and more. <laughs> so also the 500 was a big bike on at this time on the market. That's really interesting. What I'm particularly interested in at the time, what were they like to ride? What were journalists saying about this new Slash Five series at the time in terms of the riding experience? Oh, I have one test from the German magazine uh, Motorrad on the Nürburgring and they started um, with a lap on the Nürburgring to compare the bikes but they had um, 
data recording in 69. And it was, for example, faster on the Nürburgring than the 750 Honda with much more power. The chassis or the whole package was much better. So it had thrum brake, for example, but I just five minutes ago, I talked with Helmut Dane. He was on the development and later he compared the bikes in his profession at, at Metzler tires. And he said also, okay, the drum brake was not so good, but also the disc brakes at this time had not this quality Perhaps at the end of the 70s, you could say, okay, it's much better than a drum pick. So, um, yeah, they like the bike in the city, in, in, uh, perhaps not on the autobahn or on the racetrack, but on, the, on every road also in the Alps. The brakes are not as good as today, but the, the characteristic of the engine, everything, the torque, it's like a modern bike. You can go with your friends with modern BMWs, and if you are experienced rider you would not be the last <laughs> can you still find an original unmodified bike for sale these days or are they as uh, rare as hen's teeth yeah you you can find it but the problem is they have a lot of kilometers and so you have to regular to restore it but today people look only for technical restoration and that try to have the first painting and everything that uh, the first seat, they, um, they repair all the things. It's more repairing than complete changing parts. But sometimes you find it, but uh, in the last year, also from the uh, um, coffee racer scene, the market is nearly empty for that, and also the prices. So, um, but um, weeks ago at the Villa Deste Concours, so we had one original there from an Austrian collector. So some of them you find, but uh, they are very rare. And getting rarer and rarer, I'm sure. As a purist, I'd like to know what you think of the new bike that's been unveiled uh, at BMW Motorrad Days, the R9T-5. Oh, it's my favorite. It's one of the... Yes, I'm more or less a traditionalist. I like classic bikes. And, of course, I like the, the, um, the R9T because it's poor biking. And I like the Slash 5 very much. When I saw the, the first time the, the prototype... Yeah, so I'm thinking about to go to my colleagues from the sales department and order one. So I will see, perhaps in the next day or next week, I will see. I like the bike. Oh, that's great news. Well, thanks for talking to us, Fred. It's always a pleasure to travel back in time and learn more about BMW Motorrad's impressive history with you. We really hope to hear from you again in a future podcast. After all, there's nearly 100 years of history for us to discuss. Thanks, Fred, and bye for now. Yeah, thanks, Andy. Bye. Well, as for the new R90-5, it's got all the classic touches of the past evoking its historic predecessor, such as spoke wheels, chrome mirrors, old-school knee pads, smoke-effect paint finish, double-line marking on the tank and mudguard, fork gaiters, double seat with white piping and much more. All that combined with the benefits of a modern 110-horsepower boxer engine. The original was 50. And ABS, ASC and even heated grips as standard. Perfect for those cooler days in the saddle. It's in dealers now, so get online to find out more. But remember, it definitely ain't going to be around for 50 years. And by the way, if there's anything you'd like to know from BMW Motorrad's past, let us know. And we'll bring historian Fred Jacobs back out of the archives again. Because trust me, what this guy doesn't know about BMW motorcycles ain't worth knowing. <laughs>